Let's turn in the scripture to John 21. Today we're coming to our last study in the gospel according to John, at least our last study for the time being. And if you're wondering how we got so quickly from John 18 and 19 last week to John 21 this week, I would just refer you back to the message I preached on Resurrection Sunday, which was on John 20. It was in that message that I emphasized John's eyewitness testimony and actually the recounting of several eyewitness testimonies to Jesus after his resurrection. And if you're in John 21, you might just look at the last verse of John 20, the one right before where we'll start today, to note that John expressed his primary burden for writing this gospel in that final verse. He wants us to believe that Jesus is God's chosen king. means that Jesus alone is able to reconcile rebels with God and remake all of creation. That's whom God has appointed Jesus to be. And he says, and in believing, in committing your life to the Lord Jesus, you will find life. Life now, life forever. This is John's burden in writing this entire gospel. Now that we've come to this last message, I want to take just a minute before we read John 21 and review the letter as a whole. I hope this will be helpful. I've emphasized just about every week what a gospel is. John is writing a gospel. This is the gospel according to John, and a gospel is a news report. It's a biographical newspaper. It is a news report that centers on a man, Jesus of Nazareth. And John's point is that if you know who Jesus is and what he did, it is the best news in the world. The word gospel means good news. This is the best news report Ever. Jesus of Nazareth is God become man, and he is, again, the only one appointed by God to fix creation, to fix all that's broken in creation, including ourselves and our relationship with God. This is the gospel. And John emphasizes throughout his gospel these realities. In the first 12 chapters, especially, John points out who Jesus is, who he claimed to be. And one of his major themes from the very first verse is that Jesus is the creator. Jesus is the creator. He is the creator become human. And he alone has the power of life. And he has the power to remake creation. So throughout the first chapter, John not only says anything that came into existence came into existence through Jesus. But then in that first chapter, he goes on to recount seven days. He counts seven days in which when people hear the truth about Jesus, their lives are forever changed. John is basically saying, see, he's the one who can affect a new creation. The creator's back on earth and he can remake people's lives. And then throughout the rest of these first 12 chapters, Jesus works creative miracles. He turns water into wine. He commands a storm to be still, saying, I'm Lord of creation. He fixes people's brokenness. He fixes their legs. 
He fixes their eyes. He raises them from the dead. And this is all working out what John said way back in the first chapter in verse 4. In him was life. Jesus is the creator. The creator has become human. In him is life. He has the creator's power. He has the creator's authority. And all the while, as he's doing these signs that are proving who he is, Jesus is telling about who he is. He says not only, I am, he claims to be God, the great I am. But Jesus is going to say things like, I am the bread of life. I'm the light that gives life. I'm the shepherd who lays down my life in order to give life to other sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He keeps claiming to be God. He keeps claiming to have the creator's power to give life. And John is constantly urging people, especially through the first 12 chapters, but really through his whole book, if you realize who Jesus is, commit your life to him. The term he uses almost 50 times is believe him. Are you going to believe? Are you going to not only know in your head who Jesus is, but are you going to rely on him with your life? Are you going to submit your life to his authority? That's what it means to believe. John is stressing that the only right response to understanding truly who Jesus is is to commit your life to him. And then after, in those first 12 chapters, recounting all the signs that Jesus did and the claims that Jesus made and, and urging us to believe that he's the creator who has the power to give life and the power to remake life, in chapter 13 then, John slows his account way down to about a 24-hour period. So in like 12 chapters, he summarized a couple of years. And then in the next chapters, chapters 13 through 19, he slows way down to a couple hours. He zooms in on the night before Jesus was crucified. And there at that dinner, and after the dinner, Jesus begins counseling his followers, those who have believed in him and committed their lives to him, to love one another. Love is the key term in the last half of John. Jesus says in chapter 13, have you seen my example getting down and washing your feet and sacrificing myself for your purity? That's the kind of committed love you have to have for each other, disciples. Then in chapters 14 through 16, John really emphasizes that the love that characterizes disciples, it needs to grow out of a peace, out of a rest that's not stirred up by persecution and trouble, but you need to have no fear, no fear. Because I'm in control of what's going on in this world. And I'm going to take you to be with me where I am. So your hearts don't need to be troubled. Your love needs to grow out of a fearlessness, out of a peace, even out of a joy that looks on the horrible things in the world and says, Jesus is in control. I can trust him. And... Throughout those chapters, John as well is saying, I'm going to give you the helper. The helper is going to be with you. And the helper is going to be with them to produce in, in them this love that he's been talking about. And truly, the fruit of the Spirit is love. 
persevering love for Jesus, persevering love for his church. And then chapter 17, the longest prayer of Jesus that's recorded in the Bible. He prays for his disciples to be struck by his glory so that they would be loving. They would persevere in loving him and loving one another because they know who Jesus is. And then what we looked at last week, chapters 18 and 19, Jesus models love. He loves them to the end. He gives his life for his disciples. He actually dies for their twisted love. The fact that all of us by nature come into this world with love for ourselves that's greater than love for God and love for others. Jesus dies for our guilt and then Jesus provides us the model for truly self-sacrificial love. It's why we should never stop loving him because of his love for us. It's why we should never stop loving others because of his love for us and for them. It's his love that's at the center. So if you were to step back from John and say chapters 1 through 12 are who Jesus is, you need to believe in him. And if you believe in him, chapters 13 through 19 in particular, you need to follow his command to love one another. John, in a nutshell, is saying you need to perseveringly and committedly believe in Jesus because of who he is. And that belief in Jesus will work itself out in a persevering, committed love for Jesus and one another. It is, as Paul would summarize, it's just faith working itself out in love. This is the whole gospel of John in a nutshell. Now today, after the resurrection, we read the final segment of John's gospel. John 21, starting in verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. That is a different name for the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself like this. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Interesting, if you count them up, there's seven. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. I think here John assumes that you've read the other accounts and you know the significance of these fishermen, that they were called out of fishing to be fishers of men, that is, to be focusing their lives on gathering followers of Jesus. They said to him, to Peter, we're going to go with you. So the seven of them went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, as the light was beginning to pierce the darkness, Jesus stood on the shore. And yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, John here is referring to himself, therefore said to to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work. He threw himself into the sea, 
The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, maybe a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. If it's not already noted, maybe in the side references, the column of references in your Bible, next to charcoal fire, put 1818. 18 colon 18. Because in John 18, 18 is the only other time that John mentions a charcoal fire. And it was a charcoal fire that Peter was warming himself by as he disowned Jesus three times. So Peter comes back to the smell of charcoal fire. Jesus said to them in verse 10, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and he hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And even though there were so many, the net wasn't torn. Jesus said to them, come, have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time, the third time that John records, that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? I think... He's forcing Peter to remember how Peter had boasted that he would love Jesus and be committed to Jesus even if all the other disciples left him. I won't, Peter said. And this question hit a nerve. Peter said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. Jesus said to Peter a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Intend my sheep. Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And Peter said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. Peter had disowned Jesus three times. And three times, Jesus questions Peter's love. Three times, Peter recommits himself to Jesus and three times, Jesus commands Peter to serve the church. And this indicates that Jesus had fully forgiven Peter and fully restored him. So Jesus continues to say to Peter, verse 18, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you're going to stretch out your hands and another is going to dress you and carry you where you don't want to go. This Jesus said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, 
follow me. So Peter calls, Jesus calls Peter to follow him, even though it's going to mean literal crucifixion. That's what stretch out your hands while another carries you indicates. And there are at least eight documents from the first 200 years of the church that testify to Peter's crucifixion as a martyr for following Jesus. It's by that type of death that Peter would glorify God. Peter turned, verse 20, and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's referring to John the author, who was following them. The one who had also leaned back against Jesus during the supper and had said, Lord, who's it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw John, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? In other words, how's he going to die? Is he going to die the same way as me? Jesus said to him, if it's my will that he remain till I come, what's that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple, John the author, was not to die. Yet Jesus didn't say to him that he was not to die, but only if it's my will that he remain till I come, what's that to you? So John ends with something that's like a, an author's signature in the ancient world. It's almost like if you get a hardback book with a cover wrapped around in the back flyleaf, there's often a picture of the author with a little description. That's what verse 24 is. It's just the flyleaf on the hardcover book. This is the disciple who's bearing witness about these things. He's the eyewitness. And who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. I haven't lied. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written? I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Now, on the surface, you read that last statement and you say, John is speaking with hyperbole. He's exaggerating. He's saying, the world's not big enough to fit all the books that would be filled with the accounts of what Jesus did. But I think John also may be speaking literally. I think he might be returning to his introductory paragraph, referring to Jesus as creator. He says, if the things that Jesus did, verse 25, were recorded, the world isn't big enough to contain it. And that's because the world is one of the things Jesus did. He's the creator. The universe isn't big enough to declare the creator's glory because the creator is greater than what he's created. John 21 is the epilogue of the gospel. The death and resurrection that were recorded in chapters 18, 19, and 20 were the climax of the action. That's what the whole book had been working toward. And what you have here in chapter 21 is like the wrap-up segment. It's almost like the last minute or two of the movie. And what John stresses in this Segment, this wrap up segment is that disciples must follow. They must follow the crucified and risen Lord Jesus every day for the rest of their lives, no matter what has happened, 
and no matter what will happen. Jesus says, follow me no matter what. No matter what has happened, no matter what will happen. Disciples are commanded to follow Jesus every day for the rest of their lives, no matter what. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, then this chapter is not for you, at least not yet. The first thing you need to do is come to terms with what John has recorded in the first 20 chapters. And you need to ask yourself, is Jesus who he claimed to be? Is Jesus who John witnessed him to be? You've got to figure out who Jesus is and if he is who he claimed to be, the creator, become human to live like you never lived and then die in your place and then rise again saying his payment for sin is sufficient and he alone has the authority of life. He can give me eternal life. He can forgive my sin and give me life. You have to come to terms with who Jesus is and determine if you are going to commit your life to Jesus, if you're going to follow him. And if you have not, I urge you to follow him. He is the only way to be reconciled with God. You need to follow him. Follow Jesus. If you have committed your life to Jesus, if you have chosen to follow him, then this final chapter should strengthen your commitment. It should sharpen your commitment to Jesus. There are actually three ways in which this final chapter of the gospel according to John challenges you to follow Jesus in your life. There are really three areas of life, and we're going to work through them one by one. Follow Jesus in ministry, follow Jesus after failure, and follow Jesus all the way to death. The first point is simply, until Jesus returns... We must rely entirely on his power to advance the gospel, knowing that we can do nothing without him. We must rely entirely on his power to advance the gospel because we can't do anything without him. In that opening of the chapter, John notes that seven of the disciples went fishing together and caught nothing. Seven fishermen together were ineffective. Interestingly, they were experienced fishermen. They caught nothing. I don't think they realized till later that their situation was powerfully symbolic. I think that's why John especially records it as the third of three encounters with the risen Jesus. They had to come to learn that they had no power to fulfill their calling to be fishers of men, to make disciples throughout the world. They had no power to fish for people apart from Jesus, who's the risen king of creation. And every single one of us, Tri-County, we need to learn from this first part of the chapter that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. Jesus has given us a mission in life, right? We're either supporters or we're the people who are sent but every one of us is commissioned the great commission is not for missionaries the great commission is for every single believer and we use our gifts to spread the gospel every one of jesus's disciples is given this commission 
But some of us are disciples of Jesus. We know that we're called to fish, to evangelize others, to disciple others. And yet, throughout our lives to this point, if we're honest, we'd say, I've caught nothing. Is that you? Charles Spurgeon, a pastor in London about a century ago, was as effective a soul winner as possible. In fact, he he wrote a book called Soul Winner. And this is what he said. Conversion is God's work. You can't work it with your own hand. Without him, we can do nothing. Are you aware, believer, of your calling? How much do you rely on Jesus? How much do you pray for his help? How much do you trust his ability to save? Are you being controlled by fear? Are you struggling with confidence? Like you're, you're wondering, like, does this even work? I wonder if you're a bit like these disciples. They think, I'm a fisherman. I can do this. Kind of nonchalantly. Little trust in the, in the power of Jesus. They just go about their work and they think if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. No, it's not going to just happen. If you're going to fulfill your responsibility as a disciple to fish for people, it's going to be in the power of Jesus. You're going to be relying on the power of Jesus. And some of you in here are actively relying on the power of Jesus to spread the gospel. And I just want to encourage you that Jesus can do more with your efforts than you can imagine. Trust the one who gave a catch of 153 fish without the net breaking to be able to do beyond what you could imagine. You may have been giving the gospel now for 10 or 20 years faithfully to your family or to coworkers, and you say, but no one's responded. Keep following Jesus. Keep obeying Jesus. Keep relying on Jesus. Keep praying for the power of Jesus. He can do more through your efforts than you imagine. In fact, I'm convinced that when we're with Jesus and when we start piecing together all the facets of our lives that we were oblivious about, we're going to find that our feeble attempts at fishing for people were far more effective than we ever realized. Jesus can give a catch of 153 fish even after we die with the testimony we leave behind. Don't look at the results. Keep your eye fixed on Jesus. Follow him no matter what. But do not act as if it's just going to happen. Actively rely on Jesus. Second point we learn from John 21 is that until Jesus returns, we must persevere in love for him and for his church, allowing him to restore us when we miserably fail. There was massive relational distance between Jesus and Peter since Peter had disowned Jesus three times the night before his crucifixion. There was distance, and Jesus dealt with it. It's wonderful that Jesus pursued Peter 
I read this and I just say, I want to be a shepherd who's more and more like Jesus. Especially in this way. Jesus didn't make it easy for Peter. He made that charcoal fire that would have reminded him by its very smell of that night in the courtyard. You want to talk about bringing back bad memories with sensory experience? This is it. And then Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? The exact same number of times that Peter had disowned Jesus. This must have been a very painful conversation for Peter. But as Pastor Chris put it, wherever Christ wounds, he also heals. Every time that Peter said, yes, Lord, I love you. You know that I love you. Jesus recommissioned Peter. He recommissioned him to ministry. That is love and grace. Jesus, notice, he didn't chew him out. He didn't put him on some kind of probation. He didn't give him penance to do. He restored him immediately. And there are two ways that each of us needs to apply this point to us. The first is, after failure, get back up. After failure, get back up. Are you sort of glad that the disciples, the original disciples, had issues? We don't want to admit that we kind of like the fact that they failed, but I like the fact that they failed. Every disciple, every disciple is like Peter. We fail sometimes miserably, sometimes epically, historically. Not one disciple is perfect. And this means that all of us at some point will have to humble ourselves before Jesus, acknowledging our wrong. The fact that we hurt him by our actions, we displeased him by our disobedience, And we're going to have to recommit ourselves to Jesus saying, I love you. I love you, Lord. You know I love you. Jesus died for all of our sins. Not only the sins we committed before he saved us, but all of the sins that we've committed since he saved us. So Jesus can restore, like Peter, every disciple who falls even if the consequences of your sin remain, even if you land in prison for your sin, you can be restored by the grace of Jesus immediately upon true repentance. So after failure, get back up. But the second point also challenges us to never abandon the church. Never abandon the church. Notice that Peter's love for Jesus is shown by Peter's love for Jesus' sheep, the church. So many Christians today are individualistic. They think, I can show my love for Jesus, but not be part of a church. And I would say, not according to Jesus. He said to Peter three times, if you love me, then care for my sheep. So if you claim to be a disciple, but don't love the church, 
John's going to stress this especially in his first letter later in the New Testament. If you claim to love Jesus but don't love his church, then you need to question your love for Jesus, whether you really love Jesus, because love for Jesus, where the rubber meets the road, is in the church. And I need to point out that truly the foundation, the only lasting foundation for loving the church is loving Jesus. We don't love the sheep because the sheep are always just so cute and cuddly. If you've been in the church for any length of time, you know that that is not true. We hurt each other. You love the sheep because you love Jesus. And in loving the sheep, you glorify Jesus because what's motivating it, what's fueling it is love for Jesus. That's what binds us together, what we remember every time we observe the supper. Third, from the last portion of the chapter, we learn that until Jesus returns, we must commit to glorifying him in the specific way that we'll die. After Jesus restored Peter, Jesus actually reassured Peter that Peter would not fall away. He did it in a strange way. He gave the assurance in the strangest way I think possible. He said, you're going to glorify me in death. So Peter lived the rest of his life knowing that he would die in a way that would bring glory to God. I think Peter understood from the language of verse 18, like I already pointed out, that he would in fact be crucified which is precisely what happened 30 years later, mid-60s. Peter was probably in his 60s. And here, when Peter was 30 years old, Jesus simply commanded him at the end of verse 19, knowing what's coming for you down the road, follow me. No matter how hard it is, no matter how it ends, follow me. Peter's reaction in verse 20 cracks me up. He turns to John, the one writing the gospel, and he says, Jesus, but what about this guy? How is he going to die? And Jesus responds in verse 22, Peter, don't worry about him. Not a bit. I can have a different plan for him. You follow me. And every one of us needs to hear those words ringing in our ears. Jesus doesn't plan every disciple's life the same. Some through the water, some through the flood, some through the fire, but all through the blood. He leads us differently. Some of us have it easier than others. Your business is not to compare. Your business is to follow Jesus. I want to end right here. Look at that word in verse 22, will. Look at that word, verse 22, John 21, 22. Do you see that little word? If I will that he remain till I come, what's that to you? That word will, if I will. That word means purpose, determine, or plan. If you have submitted your life to the crucified risen king, this man, the creator become human, has determined how you will die. And he calls you to commit yourself to following him, no matter how hard or easy that road is. Let's be clear. 
Jesus didn't promise his disciples ease. He promised them pain, tribulation, and cross. Take it up. For Peter, literally it was a cross. He didn't promise ease. But according to John 21, Jesus has willed exactly how Peter's going to die. He had a will for exactly how John would die. Tri-County, Jesus has a plan. He has determined how every disciple in this room is going to die. We don't get to pick whether it's going to be pleasant or whether it's going to be tragic. We get to follow him. And this is where I want to wrap up the message. Let me first state it just very personally. When you die, are you going to be young or are you going to be old? I don't know. And in one sense, it doesn't really matter. Jesus has planned it and you need to follow him. Is it going to be mostly peaceful? Or is it going to be excruciatingly painful? I don't know. But Jesus has planned it. And you need to follow him. Are the people who are around you at that time going to be mostly people who love you? Or are they going to be people who hate you? Or are you going to be largely forgotten? I don't know. Jesus knows and he calls you to follow him regardless of the details. Will you die at home? In a hospital? Will you be sleeping in a bed? Or falling on the floor after a stroke? Jesus has planned it. Are you going to retain your mind to the end so that you're talking with people as you die? Or are you going to have lost your mind to dementia five or ten years ago so that you haven't made sense for a long time? I don't know. Jesus knows he's in control of it and he calls you to follow him no matter what. One of my heaviest privileges as a pastor is to sometimes be welcomed into homes and hospitals at the hour of death. I've talked, I've prayed, I've sung, I've been silent next to dying believers. Some have been conscious, some have been not conscious. Some have looked up at me with a, a glazed smile. Others have been screaming in pain in a fetal position. I've held the hand of people on their deathbed as they're singing hymns. And I've held the hand of people who are struggling to breathe. In fact, this past year, one lady said, Pastor Joe, how long? I just want to go. Every time... I've been in these situations with believers. I've learned something from the example of Christians who are glorifying God in their death, whether they're conscious or not. They followed Jesus to the end. See, when you follow Jesus to the end, you glorify God. You magnify how worthy he is of your life and of your trust. So I say right now, I want every believer at Tri-County to do business with God right now in your heart. 
I want you to pray something like this right now. Lord Jesus, I trust that you have a plan for my life day by day until I die. Jesus, I'm going to follow you no matter what. And I pray that you would help me glorify you in the specific way I die. And then, if you want to add a little P.S. with a little bit of the humor of the passage, you can say, Jesus, people thought that maybe John wouldn't die until you returned. That'd be awesome if you returned before I died. But I thank you for not returning before John died so that I could get to know you. And I'll leave the timing of your return up to you. Disciples, you need to follow Jesus no matter what. When you fall, no matter how bad your fall has been, no matter how humiliating it is for you to acknowledge it, get back up and keep following him. And follow him in the way you die no matter what the specific circumstances.